Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for uh, your grace and mercy that is new every morning. Lord, we need it even today. Um, we thank you for bringing us safely here. We thank you for this church. We thank you for the space you've given us to gather. Um, we thank you for things like PowerPoint and um, for comfortable chairs and a comfortable room. Um, we are, are thankful so much for this chance to gather, and we pray that your spirit would um, guide our hearts and minds as we um, discuss uh, even more about the intersection of Christianity and the arts. Pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Alrighty. So, we so far have looked, you know, spent many classes kind of essentially looking at why we should be, why we as Christians should care about the arts and engage the arts in different ways. And uh, the last several classes and the, the, the remaining classes are more about how, how to engage various kinds of the arts. Um, and we're applying that specifically to paintings and sculpture and portraits today um, and why we should maybe care about them more than probably most of us do, including myself. But before we begin, just a quick reminder that this Friday night we are um, hosting a movie night um, here in this room. It's for anyone at Redeemer or any friends you want to bring. Um, but of course, I'm mainly pitching it to this class to just you know, be able to together engage with a piece of art and discuss it. So watch it and discuss it. We're going to watch the movie Stranger Than Fiction. Um, and uh, it's a really, really good movie and has a lot of thought-provoking um, ideas in it. So I'm excited to show that movie to y'all. Anyone seen it before? Anyone here? Oh, wow. Man. Cool. Well, even if you've seen it, come again, and maybe you'll uh, learn some even more cool things about it. All right, so, you know, kind of going along with some of the things we've been saying in this class, that we don't want to just be unconscious consumers, we want to be conscious, you know, engagers of the arts, um, not just consuming visual information or waiting for artwork to stir our complacent souls. Um, you know, I think our looking, if we, if we are able to look at um, higher art especially, um, but any kind of art, um, more carefully, it can lead actually to doxology and also to confession. Um, I've been very helped by this new book. It came out about a month ago. It's called Redeeming Vision, A Christian Guide to Looking at and Learning from Art. Um, it's by an art professor at Covenant College. Go Scots. Bowser, are you in here? Michael Bowser, go Scots. Um, and uh, so, yeah, it's, it's just a really, really helpful. I'm, this, this class today is essentially condensing this book um, into class form and kind of a, a more, sort of an overview of this book. Um, some verses that come to mind um, are James... Uh, in James 1, 
be quick to listen and slow to speak. And I think that the more that we learn how to, um, even with artworks, and I'll talk about some of the interesting statistics about how quickly the average person looks at a piece of artwork. But I think even just learning how to engage a piece of art, like a painting or a sculpture, can, I think, have an effect on us to be quick to listen and slow to speak. Um, I think of the book of Revelation or the end of Daniel, like apocalyptic literature in the Bible. We, we talked about this the first class, but, but also the Psalms, just, you know, all the poetic art forms used in the Bible, I think, you know, there's kind of this, you know, engaging with the Bible can help us engage with the world, but also learning how to engage various kinds of art can help us appreciate some of the art forms in the Bible and get more out of them, um, and what, what the, uh, the authors in the Bible are doing with some of the images they use in books like the Revelation. All right, so <clears throat> um, in this book, Alyssa Weichbrot is her name. She, um, she says there's this, what kind of seeing do we want to have as Christians when we look at an art, artwork? The first thing is we want embodied seeing. So embodied means a couple things. It's kind of paying attention to how the piece of artwork affects us. Pay attention to, you know, what it makes you feel, what, what effects it has on you. But it's also embodied means taking the piece of artwork seriously as a thing, um, you know, not just being attentive to what is being represented in it, but how the artist is communicating, how it's made and what it's made from. Um, one, one pastor actually said, if an artwork is getting a meaning across in a way that is too apparent, then it's really preaching rather than art. Um, I think that's an interesting point where an artist is often trying to get us to have to think um, and, and, and really meditate to understand, and I like C.S. Lewis's quote, surrender to the artwork itself. Um, what kind of seeing is embodied seeing, but also loving seeing? So beginning with the posture of love, you know, refusing to make ourselves the center of an encounter with an artwork, um, and being ready to find truth, even if it's, like we've talked about already, from a non-Christian artist. You know, as Augustine said, truth belongs to the Lord wherever it's found. Doesn't mean a wholesale embrace of, you know, any false truths they're trying to, to teach. It um, doesn't mean that there's things that we probably shouldn't look at at all. Um, but I think you guys get the point of being ready to find truth from any kind of artist. And then transforming. If we engage art out of a love for God and a love for neighbor, we should expect the Holy Spirit to work through that. Um, he may or may not, but we can expect it. I, I like this quote. When we love Christ wholeheartedly, the experience of art can surely become part of the process by which we grow up into him in all things. <clears throat> so, all right, what kind of seeing that? So, so how do we see? Um, we're going to talk about sort of threefold engagement with visual art. And it's going to sound a lot like words you've probably, if you've ever done an inductive Bible study, uh, it's the same kind of flow. It's observe, interpret, and apply. All right, so that's also called visual analysis. Visual analysis, well, the observe part especially is the visual analysis. So um, 
So let's talk about observing first a piece of art. Um, I think that we've been trained even more today to just kind of quickly look at any picture or, or anything, especially think of digital technology and all the images that we're all confronted with on an average day, scrolling through social media, watching any kind of TV. But I think even going to an art museum, we can struggle. Um, they did studies at the Met in New York. And they did studies at the Art Institute of Chicago. They kind of just, um, I don't know exactly how they did it, maybe through cameras, just kind of studying cam the cameras in the museums and watching how long people stayed on a particular painting. Um, so at the Met, um, the, the average visitor, how long do you think that the average visitor spends looking at a painting? So Pam got it right, 30 seconds, 30 seconds. All right, and then they um, also did the same thing at the Mona Lisa. What, I forget what, where it is, it's in France, the Louvre. Um, what do you think the average amount of time they, they studied, I think it was recently in the last five years, they studied the average amount of time someone spends looking at the Mona Lisa, probably the most famous painting in the world. What do you think the average amount of time is? Way lower. Way lower. 15 seconds. So. Because they push you along? Do you think that, okay, that, that's a... Okay, okay, so that, I appreciate the, so, um, yeah, maybe there's a fine print that you need to, to look at there. Um, but yeah, I mean, what are you able to accomplish in that amount of time? The, the things you're amount of, able to accomplish is to categorize it, you know, what the subject of the artwork is, you know, basically kind of decide on first impression whether you like it or not, um, so... I think learning visual analysis is helpful. Um, paying attention to what we see before we can make claims about what we see. So a quick, quick crash course on visual analysis. Zachary will probably get more into it next week. Zachary unfortunately couldn't come today, so he will not be in here. Um, so there's four parts of visual analysis. There's the formal elements of a painting, there's formal principles that the elements are um, being used to achieve. And there's style and there's frame. I'm just going to go through these pretty quickly. Um, but yeah, formal elements, we'll start with that. And just remember, and this is something that Russ Ramsey said, the guy who did the, the Rembrandt video we did earlier. The, he talked about actually Van Gogh's self-portrait. Often everything you see in a painting was deliberately put there by the artist. Assume everything you see has some meaning or purpose. He gives the example of, like in Renaissance painting, a dog actually has this meaning of loyalty. Um, rabbits, um, sexual desire. Peacocks, immortality. So there's, there's different things like that that we can learn. Uh, but the first formal element is line. So often a, a, a Painting or portrait will utilize line, straight or curved, an explicit line or an implied line. Um, and what does it aid with? It helps kind of with emphasis, right? It points us towards something that we want to see. So how is line used in this um, famous photograph called Migrant Mother? How is line used? 
the arm pointing to her face. That's wanting to emphasize her face probably is the first thing you see, and line helps you with that, right? Uh, and then shape is another thing. So, you know, in a two-dimensional picture like this, there'll be two-dimensional shapes, geometric shapes, um, or unique shapes in like an abstract painting. Um, sometimes squinting can help you see the shape. And so there's actually shape being utilized in this photograph, and it's a triangle. Does anyone see where the triangle is? So two children pointing to the mom's head that, that's kind of emphasized the children kind of leaning on her, but also the, the woman's shoulders and head, it's just, it's the triangle of that is it's just emphasizing again her face. Um, so there's so much more that could be said about this photo, but that's just an example. Uh, forms, that's uh, just, form is only for sculpture, so it's, you know, we'll talk about that sculpture in a minute. Um, but the idea with sculptures is you want to, if you can, be able to walk all the way around it and see the form and, and how they use form. And then color is another thing, um, another very basic thing. Uh, which colors they use, warm colors, cool colors, the intensity, brightness or dullness, contrast, using color to contrast, all the ways that color is used to convey meaning. So we're going to look at this painting in a little bit. It's called uh, Vase of Flowers. It was painted in the early 1700s. But of course, color is used in many ways um, in that painting. And we'll talk more about that. Space uh, is another one. So relationship between parts, um, you know, just how the, how the painting is arranged to communicate meaning. So, of course, a very pretty easy example is this painting from 1847, The Power of Music. So I think that's a great title. Um, so how, like, think about how is space used here? You know, the, the artist does a great job with depth perception, and it shows sort of the separation of this African-American, um, just kind of listening in. The barn door is probably the biggest. That's also probably a use of shape as well to communicate meaning, but the barn door is probably the biggest shape and space on the painting, and it kind of has this communication of separation. Um, so that's an example of the use of space. And then texture, of course, that's, um, especially on like an oil painting, you have to be able to see it. It's not as well communicated through a 2D um, PowerPoint. But um, So the formal elements that we just walked through, they aid with formal principles. Through these formal elements, artists will create unity, sort of visual cohesiveness. Does everything feel like it belongs together or does it not belong together? And that can communicate different things. Balance is an important thing. Do things balance each other out, whether very explicitly or implicitly? Movement, of course, what, what path do our eyes follow? Um, it may direct us to a specific part of a painting. Rhythm, there's regular, repeated shapes or colors or irregular things. Um, of course, emphasis, what's the focal point? And then contrast what is maybe being contrasted, like the previous painting we just saw. Um, so we looked at formal elements, formal principles, and then style is another thing. So there's realist style, so more representational art. 
things that we see in the real world, kind of the spectrum from very realist to more impressionist, where it's like something in the real world, but they exaggerate it. Um, and then there's, of course, the other extreme of abstract, where it's not representing anything in particular. So here's a famous abstract painting from um, 1913, Painting with Green Center. Abstract art is something I um, yeah, don't know much about. Uh, she has some, some thoughts on it in there. In this particular painting, um, at that time, modernity had been sort of the big um, thought pattern. And um, so the idea in this painting is, in, in abstract art, at least at this time, was to kind of get people away from modernity of just needing to have hard facts. And, and it's, it's trying to communicate um, I, I, would, I would interpret it more as Gnosticism, probably, but just kind of the, uh, get us thinking more about the, the non-material um, non world. Um, but also something about abstract art, which is interesting, is it's, they're not really trying to obviously convey a subject. They're trying to give you an experience. So as your eyes are moving throughout the painting, they're, they're wanting you to, to have this visceral experience um, with the art um, and through that communicate some things. So fortunately, I can't comment too much more on that, but that's the little I've learned so far about abstract painting. Maybe some of you um, have studied it more, but it is fascinating. And, you know, I, there, there is thought that some of the in, um, um, motivation for this artist with this abstract work is, you know, like I said, like getting us away from the material as Christians, we can say, yeah, we should affirm the material world. God, Jesus was incarnate. Often we, we don't affirm it, but also sometimes we get too focused on the material world and, and abstract art can get us thinking about um, the transcendence and um, the non-material. All right, so f uh, another thing is frame, kind of where the paint, often a painting or a sculpture was made for a specific place. Um, and, you know, when you take it out of that place, it doesn't quite have as much of an effect. And so that's, that's kind of what frame is getting at. All right. So that's observing and then interpreting the piece of art. So we've observed, we've been careful. Okay, what exactly is there? And then um, interpreting. I think a huge question is the context of the artwork. Um, there's so much you can learn just from getting the context of it. Um, and obviously the same is true when um, you're studying scripture. What do you think the artist wants you to take away from the piece? What questions does it raise? What does it answer? Are some interpretation questions. And then applying. What can this artwork show me about the truth, goodness, or beauty of God? What might it reveal about the brokenness or fallenness of humanity or the beauty of humanity? What might this work of art be pointing, how might it be pointing to Jesus and the fulfillment he brings? How might it be important for followers of Jesus to engage with this piece of art? So let's do that with uh, this sculpture. This is, um, I don't know how to say that name, Polykletos, probably, called the head of a youth. Um, what you see there is actually not the original. It was a marble copy uh, made in around like 40 A.D., the original was made in 450 B.C. out of bronze. 
um, and only the head and the neck remain. Uh, it is widely believed that it, the original was a full um, man, a nude man holding a discus, probably um, displayed at like an athletic arena. Um, and obviously now you can see the, the, marble, the, the marble copy is chipped in different places that I'm assuming the original was not, didn't have those chips on it. But, um, you know, I've got several things to observe about this, but I'd just open it up to anyone here. Like, what are some initial observations you have of this sculpture? It's, um, it's supposed to be life-size, so it's, it's like the size of the average male head as well. Any initial observations of it? Yes. Right. Right. Yep. Yep. No, that's a great point. Any other observations? Yes. Yes, and that is something the artist is very much trying to, yes, exactly. It's a very idealized um, uh, sculpture, uh, picture of a face. Um, so in terms of form, it's a sculpture. So form, I think the fact that this is just its head and how heavy that head, like just the... I don't know. I think it strikes me just how big this would have been, the whole thing, and you've probably seen, there's plenty other examples of that, but just especially for that day to, to make something that big and that beautiful. Um, there's balance. Balance is a huge thing, as Pam was saying. Um, the symmetry of the face. Um, also the tilt of the head and the neck um, form a balance. And then the proportion of the hair um, so, like, the hair is well-proportioned with the face. Obviously, there's lots of texture in it, texture used. So there's, like, the, the lush hair, but then there's the very smooth skin. Um, and then it's uh, got m the marble color, which I'll talk about in a second. But, yeah, what kind is it? What style? It's representational, but it's, I would say it's, it's kind of more... It's, it's representational, but it's almost too perfect. It's this idealized man. And I think when you learn the context of the painting, um, it helps understand more of what's being communicated. Um, so in the 5th century BC in Greece, where this was originally made, um, nude males sort of represented ideals or also the gods. And so there's this sense of this being this idealized human, obviously. And for us in, in, in America today, I would say the ideal body is often, we use the words like attractive. Is it attractive? But in that time, um, ideal had to do with mathematical perfection. And so the symmetry in the face is actually 
um, using the, the ideals of the day of mathematical perfection. There's perfect symmetry. Um, the, the author said that, um, I, I didn't realize this, but the, the average human face is actually not perfectly symmetrical, which I, would, I, I thought that it was, but apparently it's not that perfectly symmetrical. Um, and then originally it was made in burnished bronze to look like the athletes has this tanned and oiled skin. Um, and so, you know, one idea is this, this sculpture is like us, but it's perfect. Um, it's, it's not just meant to beautify, it's meant to direct us towards an ideal. And then um, the, the original bronze was copied in Rome. It was a Greek um, sculpture. It was copied in Rome because, you know, Rome still loved a lot of things about Greek culture. And it was actually, uh, they believe it was painted originally. Um, there's a lot of evidence to show that the sculptures back in that day were painted. Um, but there was a resurgence of marble sculpting in the Renaissance, and by then all the ancient sculptures, the paint had worn off, and they actually loved the, what it communicated having a marble sculpture. It communicated rationality, communicated nobleness, and it was its own kind of beauty. So marble, you know, think of Michelangelo's David um, in marble. That's kind of an epitome of that. And so what does the artist want us to take away um, based on, you know, some of those reflections? What would you say the artist wants us to take away? Any thoughts? That we should want, maybe, this body? Um, that we should, um, you know, maybe worship those who, uh, or, or think very highly of those with bodies like that. It's interesting that body image, you know, even though it's a thing today, it also was very much a thing uh, back then. You know, 450 BC, and they're, they're already dealing with these things. Um, what does it teach us about God? That, that obviously that humans are gifted and can make really beautiful uh, pieces of art that get the, the body that God has created is, is a wonderful thing. But what does it teach us about the brokenness of man? It teaches us, you know, our, our longing for perfection. That, um, that we want perfection, not maybe some of us, we struggle with that in our bodies, but there's so many other ways that we struggle with perfectionism. Um, and perfection is, is, is something that this is definitely communicating. And, you know, how does it point us to Jesus? He is our perfection. Um, he is the answer to our struggles with perfection. Um, and why might it be important for Christians to engage with this work of art? It, it humbles us, humbles us with our own struggles with perfectionism. Any final comments about this sculpture? I'm going to move on to another painting. All right. Um, this is called Vase of Flowers by Margareta Haverman. Any initial observations from it? Yeah, obviously the PowerPoint doesn't communicate it as well. And I, I pulled out some sections um, to highlight some things that you obviously still can't see that well, but we can...
try and see him. It's an apple. Yep. And you can't see, but there is an arch that it's sitting in behind it. You can't see that very well. Yeah, the detail is definitely a huge, um, a very important part of it and, and something that is a really helpful takeaway, the, the detail that it, it has. A lot of contrast, absolutely. The contrast is, is uh, having the effect of, you know, really highlighting the bouquet, the beautiful colors in the middle and then the dark around it. Any other? Yes. Yep. 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 Yeah. Especially that day, that's a big deal, that it was a woman, um, for sure. Yep. So there's, it, it adds to the beauty of it and the, the unity of it. Um, it uses shape. Um, there's kind of this oval shape to kind of help unify. This is a, you know, elaborate assortment in this bouquet, but the shape kind of helps unify that. Um, and um, you're never too distracted by any particular part. You're able to focus on the whole, um, and shape kind of helps accomplish that. Um, and it also repeats other rounded shapes within that big oval. And it uses color, like we've we've mentioned. Your eyes are kind of drawn where first to the white, one of the white flowers, either the big white flower in the middle or the the kind of the tulip on top that's starting to um, kind of be overgrown. And then, of course, against the dark backdrop background, there's the line of white flowers, um, and that leads us down kind of to the apple and the grapes to focus on that. Um, you can't see them very well, but there is an ant on the apple. There is a different kind of ant on the grapes. There is a fly on the tulip, and um, there is a fly somewhere else, but I, I can't remember where. It's hard to see on here. There is a snail right here, and there is a butterfly right there. And those actually, the butterfly especially has a meaning. Yep. Yep. Absolutely. And I'm going to I'm going to highlight some of that. So, uh Alyssa Whitebrook, she says, not only does she um Margaret Margareta purposefully arrange the composition, light and color to move us through the painting, but she also rewards us for our efforts with delightful details that we might otherwise miss. I love the way she puts that. So, you know, I think for, for most of us here, we look at this and is it, you know, it's just another beautiful bouquet. We, we, we see bouquets all the time. We see paintings of bouquets a lot. Um, but upon, you know, further investigation, there are some interesting things about this painting. So there are some flowers in that painting that were common. And uh, this was uh, a Dutch painting. Margareta Haverman, uh, this was painted in the Netherlands. So there were some flowers in there that were common at the time, um, and even up to that time in um, the Netherlands. I, I can't pronounce some of uh, Roses is one of them, hollyhocks, and then hyacinths. I don't know how to pronounce that, if anyone knows. 
Um, but there's also exotic species in this bouquet. There's um, opium, opium poppy leaves from Turkey. There's Persian tulip hybrids. There's passion fruit flower from Brazil. There's African marigolds. Um, and also, something of note in this is that the kinds of flowers don't bloom at the same time of the year. So this painting is actually an impossibility. You, if this were real flowers, you would not be able to have this bouquet ever because some of these flowers bloom early in the year, some of them bloom later in the year. Um, so that's another you know, interesting aspect of this. Um, so it looks like reality, but this is actually fiction. It, it, it's an impossibility. And then even in, there's some detail, like the bugs. There's two different kinds of ants. There's two different kinds of flies. Um, and so there's just an attention to detail. If you look at the grapes, the, the, you can't see it well in this photography, but just if you look closely at the grapes, they are really well painted. Um, and the detail is, is stunning. All right, so the context of the painting, early 1700s in the Netherlands, there had been, and, and kind of in Europe as well, but there had been a shift from more, you know, the, the dominant kind of paintings were more religiously themed and kind of idealistic. Um, there was a shift at this time to more everyday paintings. Um, and this, they believe, was actually influenced by the Protestant Reformation of kind of elevating the common man, elevating things that were common and presenting the world as it was. Um, and so a lot of these newer kind of common paintings would highlight both the beauty of this world, but also its brokenness. They would have things like broken, tree, broken trees to, you know, kind of illustrate the fall and the reality of the fall. Um, but there were thousands of paintings like these in the Netherlands at the time. And most believe there are hidden messages in these paintings. Um, the painting kind of becomes a teaching tool. So the poppy um, leaf uh, can kind of illustrate uh, sleep or death. There's forget-me-nots in there, and that kind of illustrates memory. The hyacinths, if that's how you say it, um, illustrate faith. And then there's yellowing spots on the rose leaves, um, like here, and that kind of, there's this sense of them starting to die. Um, and so it kind of is a metaphor for our time on earth is fleeting. And even the existence of a butterfly, the average life of a butterfly is a month. I didn't know that. Uh, monarchs are longer, but the average butterfly lifespan is a month. And so butterflies are sort of this, can be this illustration for the, the, the fleetingness of life. Life is a vapor. But there was also a social aspect to this painting. The Netherlands had just broke free from Spain um, shortly before this. And so the home in the Netherlands was really elevated at that time as this um, symbol of stability. And so homes, there was this growing popularity of just really beautifying the homes in the Netherlands with paintings like this. And there was just, it was a statement being made of just, we are a more stable society. Um, also, Netherlands was becoming more global at this time. They were starting to dominate global trade. Um, a few decades before this, any kind of representational art in Netherlands had more domestic things like Nether you know, Dutch cheeses or things like that. Um, and, but in this painting, there's flowers from around the world. So what statement is that making? You know, it's, it's, this, it's this proud statement of, of you know, the growth of Dutch 
trade and, and how global the Netherlands is becoming. And this painting is making that statement. And so, you know, you kind of have sort of in this more theological reflection, but then social reflection, the, just the complexity of this painting. And as, you know, Zachary has shared before, art is subjective, and that's something that we can struggle with. But, um, you know, what do you think the artist wants to, us to take away from this painting? I think, you know, there's these proud social statements about where the Netherlands was at, but yet, at the same time, you know, there, this, this painting is in some ways a celebration of the advancement of the Netherlands, but the artist still puts within it these subtle hints at um, how life is fleeting. Okay, so we've progressed, but there's still the decay existent, the decay of one of the leaves. There's the butterfly that represents, um, you know, the, the, the how life is a vapor. And I love that contrast. Um, in this painting. So what does it teach us about God? Of course, it teaches about the beauty of creation. This, this painting is a celebration of the beauty of creation. Um, the, the detail in this painting, the, the artist is delighting in the, the beauty of creation in this painting. She seems to be saying, just pay attention, pay closer attention to everything around you. Um, and it, it encourages us to do the same. I think of, uh, that, uh, and, and that reflection leads us to Matthew 6, where it says, consider the lilies, you know, how God has this much care for, for these parts of creation, how much more does he care for us? This is sort of an illustration of, you know, consider the lilies. Um, but then it also teaches us about the brokenness of life, that life is fleeting, that life is a vapor. Um, and I think it could, you could say about Jesus, you know, it reminds us that Jesus is making all things new. And, and flowers can be sort of a symbol of, of, of that. Any other thoughts, reflections? Yes, Megan. Yes. Yeah. Yes. Yeah, it could have taken a year to paint just to wait till all the flowers were in bloom to, to have. Yeah. Yeah, it just helps you appreciate the, yeah, the attention to detail the artist has. Any other final comments? We're, you know, that's all I had for today. So, yeah, Phil. Oh, wow. Yeah. He was saying the passion fruit flower, he, he has heard that it's used in Brazil to illustrate the five wounds of Christ. That's really cool. Right. Yeah. So the insects also communicate maybe some of the brokenness of the world as well. That it, there's, initially it's this beautiful perfection, but the closer you look, that there's some flaws. Yeah. Yeah, Allison.
Right. Yeah. 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 Uh, that's a great question. How how can we get more out of the context of it? Yeah, I, w- I don't really. I th- does anyone have any thoughts on that? Yeah, I would. Yeah, you can do like, a, or you can do like a guided tour. Um, I'm sure there's people in Raleigh who do that um, at the art museum. But no, that's a great, great point. It can be hard to get this much out of a painting if you don't know all that background. Yes. Yeah. Right. Absolutely. Hmm. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Okay. Daily art. Cool. Daily art app. That sounds cool. All right. We need to go. Father, thanks for this chance to reflect on these things. Um, Lord, we want to be a people that whatever we do, we do unto your glory. And there are so many things we do in a given day or week. And so we want to be a people that even when we engage with art, that we do it to your glory. Um, So I pray that you'd continue to teach us that as well as all parts of our lives to do it to your glory. pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.